0: Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you, Richard, and everyone else who's taken part. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, as Richard has said, we, we started this new series called Cinderella Complex, which is about the Holy Spirit. And two weeks ago, I, I, I did three things. Uh, the first was I explained the reason for this series now, what, why we're doing it at this at this point in time, which is partly to tie in with our Sunday morning series on Ephesians because in that letter we discover that the Holy Spirit's work and active presence is mentioned in every single chapter. And so this morning, if you were there, as we read chapter five, we were thinking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. But, but the two bigger main reasons that I gave for this series was, the first of all, that if the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead is living in us, then surely that should make a profound difference to how we do day-to-day life. I mean, Richard's just been praying for us that as we engage with God's word, it would impact how we live this week. But if the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, then there should be a profound difference in, in how you do life. A.W. Tozer, kind of pastor, preacher, author from the last century, early in the last century, said this, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. I've always found that a very sobering and unsettling thought. And it's often led me to wonder that if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from my life, never mind this church, how long would it be until I would notice? How long would it be? The second main reason for this series, not just at this whole idea of the same spirit, but the second main reason, and it relates to the first, is this general widespread acknowledgement and recognition from a variety of people across all different backgrounds and positions is that we are in danger of underemphasizing the Holy Spirit, maybe even neglecting him. And so this series is just an attempt to avoid that tendency. So that was the first thing I, I did, give a reason. Those were the reasons. The second thing I did two weeks ago was explain the title for this series because I know it has kind of confused some people. Uh, But it's a title that was inspired by something I read by Alistair McGrath, where in one of his books, he said, the Holy Spirit has long been the Cinderella of the Trinity. The other two sisters may have gone to the theological ball, but the Holy Spirit got left behind every time. And I don't want the Holy Spirit to get or to feel left behind in in my life or in this church. And then the third thing I I, I did a fortnight ago was identify three kind of central, crucial truths about the Holy Spirit. Does does anyone remember what they were? The Holy Spirit is a person. Yep, the Holy Spirit is a distinct person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is God. God. So he's not, he's not an influence. He's not an it. He's not some kind of mystical force. The Holy Spirit is a person. Distinct person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so at times in Scripture, you see all three in the one place involved at the one time, for example, at the baptism of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is God. He's not one third God. He's 100% God. And so, for example, we know that whenever Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter says you've lied to God. So the Holy Spirit's fully God. Just before I leave that last point, and I didn't say this last time, that last point that the Holy Spirit is God and we begin to identify 18 or 19 other things. Don't know how many we're gonna get through tonight, but that's the aim. But one of the questions that people sometimes ask, well, if the Holy Spirit is God, can you, should you worship him, sing to him, pray to him? What do you think? If we look at the Nicene Creed, uh, which we showed two weeks ago, or this part of it, it's, this is a statement of of the orthodox faith, of the early Christian church, it's still used, it's still affirmed by most churches across the kind of Christian landscape. This is what it says. We believe in one God. We believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and is glorified. I'm sure some of us will be aware that whenever a certain chorus was introduced a few years ago, Father, we love you. Do you remember that? number of people nodding. Father, we love you, we worship and adore you. Then the second verse, Jesus, we love you, we worship and adore you. But when it came to the third verse, Spirit, we love you, we worship and adore you, there was a real nervousness at that point for some people. People weren't sure whether we should or continue singing that song, and either what happened, that song was dropped from the playlist. Or else, the third verse was reworded. Was that right? Is the Nicene Creed wrong? Now, the reason some people uh, felt uncomfortable about worshiping and adoring the Spirit was because of one particular verse in Scripture, John sixteen thirteen or at least because of that verse in the authorised version that many people kind of knew for years and years and years, where it says, he, referring to the Spirit, this is what the King James Version says, he, the Spirit, will not speak of himself. But if you look at other translations, and interestingly, if you look at the new King James Version, you will read, he will not speak on his own that that's what that was really referring to, which is very different. Now, I know that those verses go on to say that the Spirit will glorify Jesus, and we will come back to that, but because the Holy Spirit is God, he, with the Father and the Son, the quote, the Nicene Creed, is to be worshiped and is to be glorified. And therefore, this morning, for example, we finished our service by singing to the Spirit. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh in me. We sang that song two weeks ago. And I also quoted a great hymn of Charles Wesley, his hymn to the Holy Spirit, where he wrote about, come, Holy Ghost, using the authorized versions for version. Now, having said all of that, The pattern that you find almost always in the New Testament is that you pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the New Testament pattern. And therefore, if you get into the habit of praying to the Holy Spirit all the time, then you would be out of sync with the New Testament. But it's okay to pray, come Holy Spirit. That is not a wrong prayer. Or Holy Spirit, fill me afresh. That is not a wrong prayer. So I want to suggest to you, a lot of it is semantic. I want to suggest to you, it is okay. Provided we maintain balance and understand the full extent of what we're doing. Okay, so those are the first three things that I've touched on. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. Let's begin to look at some more. And I've said that these are 20 things in total, maybe less, maybe more. 20 things in total that every Christian should know. Actually, as I was thinking about this, it's 20 things that every person should know about the Holy Spirit. And so here's the fourth thing. And I want to take us right back to the beginning right back to the very start of Genesis 1. The first two verses where we discover that the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Really important that we get this. In the beginning, God... That is the opening sentence. But the first person of the Trinity to be specifically named is the Spirit. And we all know this verse. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit involved in creation. Now, as you read the rest of Scripture... And those of you who know God's word will know that yet, but Jesus was also involved, wasn't he? With the Father in creation. That is explicit from John chapter 1, where we read he, the word, referring to Jesus, the one who became flesh and lived among us. He was in the beginning with God, and then it says, all things were made through Jesus. And without him, nothing was made That has been made. Or in Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that all things have been created by Jesus. But in the book of beginnings in Genesis, we see and we learn that that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, was intimately involved. The Hebrew word, and we looked at this two weeks ago, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. It's often translated in scripture as wind or breath. And so, for example, whenever you read the Psalms, you again catch a glimpse of the Holy Spirit's work and involvement in creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. We know that God spoke, let there be, let there be. But all the host of them, by the breath, by the spirit of his mouth, the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. He was hovering over the face of the waters. That's what Genesis 1-2 tells us. And that word hovering conveys the idea of, of a bird sitting in a nest, hovering and brooding over her eggs, caring for new life. And that is the picture of God preparing to bring life into this world through his spirit. We've just sang Holy Spirit from creation's birth, giving life. The Holy Spirit giving life to all that God has made. In fact, the Holy Spirit is best seen in this context as the source of life. I don't know if you thought about this. The Holy Spirit was involved in creation as the source of life. Listen to what we learn from the book of Job. The Spirit of God has made us. And the breath The Spirit of the Almighty gives us life. So so the fourth thing I want us to take away and recognize and know is that the Holy Spirit was involved in creation as a source of life. Fifth thing, the Holy Spirit was active and present in people's lives throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes there is a tendency to think that the Holy Spirit only really became involved in people's lives in the New Testament post-Pentecost. Now, there's no doubt that at Pentecost, and obviously we'll get to that, but that at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, a new day did dawn. And at various moments in the Old Testament, God promised that a new day would come whenever he would pour out his Spirit on all people. Where do we read that? Where do we read that God's going to pour out his Spirit on all people in the Old Testament? Joel, absolutely. Absolutely. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon particular people at particular times for particular tasks. It's really important to get this. And let me illustrate this. And I'm sure many of you, again, if I was to throw this out, you would come back at me with, with lots of examples. But just note how influential the Holy Spirit has been in people's lives from day one. So in Genesis 41, we read that the Spirit of God was in Joseph. And do you know who it says discerned that? Pharaoh did. Somehow, Pharaoh discerned that the Holy Spirit was in this guy. In Exodus 33, we read that God filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God, which enabled him to be incredibly creative. We read in the book of Judges that the spirit of the Lord was on Othniel, was on Gideon, was on Jephthah. And in the record about the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David, we read, and I find this a fascinating idea, but if you read the story about Saul and David, it actually says that the spirit of God rushed upon these two men what must that have been like for the Spirit of God to rush on these two men? In this, in the, it was the Spirit of God who carried and directed Elijah's ministry. And in Second Chronicles, we read that the Spirit of God came upon Azariah and Zechariah. And we could go on and we could go on. The Holy Spirit was active and present in certain people's lives throughout the Old Testament. And as a result, their lives were turned upside down. Their lives were turned inside out. But God used those men and women in countless different ways to impact and influence situations and outcomes and moments in history. And you know, the exciting thing is, if we do fast forward, the exciting thing is in God's unfolding drama and story, the incredible thing is that the same Holy Spirit, the same God-given Holy Spirit, is now active and present in our lives, enabling us to impact and influence other people's lives and situations and moments in history. Same Holy Spirit. But he has been active and involved in people's lives right from day one. I will, said God, pour out my spirit on all people, and he did. But don't neglect to realize that he was active in the Old Testament as well. Number six. As I say, what I'm gonna do with some of these things as we go through all 20 is, some of them I'm gonna just mention briefly, others I'm gonna kind of park on for a while. But number six He is the Spirit of truth. And again, this is so important for us to know. Whenever Jesus told his followers that he would ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit just as the Father had promised he would, here's how Jesus described the Spirit who would come. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. And just in case you don't know who that is, he is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. And a short time after that, Jesus also said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. You know, in a world where truth is up for renegotiation and everybody has their own version of the truth, And at times, whenever it's really hard to know where do you turn to, who do you believe in in search of truth, it's vitally important to remember that the Spirit of truth lives in you. He is the Spirit of truth. He lives in you. He will take you by the hand, and He will guide you into all the truth that there is. And yes, it's true that the enemy of our souls is a liar. He is the father of lies. There is no truth in him, warns Jesus. But the Spirit of God, who indwells every single Christian, is the Spirit of truth. And He will keep you from being deceived and distracted. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Number seven. The Holy Spirit is our, it follows. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Shortly after Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth in John 14, he then said, you know, this Holy Spirit will teach you all things. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. So how does that work? What does that mean? Well, let me take you over to something else John wrote. These words are all from John's gospel here. But let me take you to something else that John wrote. His first little letter, his first epistle, where he said this. But you have, again, this is this whole idea as all Christians, all believers, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in you. You have received the Holy Spirit, He lives in you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what he teaches, as we've just looked at, is true. It's not a lie. So just as he taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. Now, let me just set this in context, because this is really interesting. John has been talking to Christians about the danger of listening to or believing anyone who denies Jesus. He's been warning believers about those, and and he refers to some of these people as antichrists, not capital A, but small a, antichrists. He says there are people about, and they're going to try to deceive you. They're going to try to deny who Jesus is and who God is. And of course, as we know, all those kind of voices, they're they're still alive. They they still talk. They haven't gone away. They never will, at least not the side of the next life. But as John speaks into the lives of these Christians who are surrounded and who are being challenged by these dangerous and false voices, John offers two things, two safeguards, if you like. The first is found a couple of verses before these verses where we read in 1 John 2, 24, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That, that's his advice, that's his safeguard against being distracted and being deceived. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What did they hear from the beginning? What had they been taught? What had they discovered? It all came from the word of God as they had it, had it up to that point and those who had taught it to them. And so what John was saying is you need to hold on to that. You need to hold on to the truths of the Christian faith and all that you've been taught and all that you have discovered and all that people have shared with you about who Jesus is and who God is. The story so far. But the second safeguard that he says is the Holy Spirit who lives in you. He is the one who now teaches you everything you need to know. In other words, what the Holy Spirit does is he takes God's word And he applies it. He provides a clear and true understanding of who Jesus is and who God is. And in that sense, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And for us today, as we read God's word, as we listen to it being taught and talked about, it's important to remember that it is the Holy Spirit who is ultimately our teacher. He is the one who applies truth into our lives. And so it's imperative that we do not under-emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit. Word, let it abide in you. Spirit, let the Spirit take the Word of God and apply it into your heart and into your life. The Holy Spirit Is our teacher. And then the eighth thing, and this may be, this will be, it's five past. Some of you are thinking, I want to get to the second half. Uh, The eighth thing for tonight that we need to know, and I did mention this two weeks ago very quickly in passing on the Sunday night, but it is something that those of you who have been tracking the Sunday morning series will know. But the eighth thing about the Holy Spirit that every Christian should definitely know is that he can be grieved. It's part of the reason why we're able to say right at the very start, the very first thing about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit's a person. It's not an it. It's not an influence. It's not a mysterious force because if the Holy Spirit can be grieved, it means he's got feelings. He's got feelings. He can be hurt. And so in Ephesians 4, in chapter 30, as Paul instructs Christians how to live, he is very explicit and he says, listen, please, please, I urge you, do not... Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And if you want to know what grieves the Holy Spirit, then Paul identifies a number of things. And again, I know if you're part of the morning series, you'll know these things. But let me just remind all of us here this evening. These, these are the things that grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Unwholesome talk. Tearing others down with harsh, critical words brings sorrow to the Holy Spirit. Bitterness, an unwillingness to forgive, an unwillingness to let go, that grieves the Holy Spirit. When we lose our temper, we, when we do not control our anger, when we let the sun go down while we're still angry, when we nurse offence and carry it on, carry it through, the Spirit is grieved. When we slander someone, when we make false and damaging statements about anyone, the Spirit weeps. Any hint of sexual activity outside of a God given, God designed, God intended context grieves the spirit. Greed. And for those who are going with us through Sunday mornings, there are more. Do you know it's really easy to grieve the Holy Spirit? It can happen in a moment, it can happen on your way to church as you voice off to someone who cuts you up. But here's the question that every Christian needs to face up to, I need to face up to. Whenever I do any of the above, whether it's unwholesome talk, whether it's slander, whether it's refusal to forgive, whatever it is, do I realize and know immediately that I have grieved the spirit who lives in me? And if I don't, why not? Why not? And when I do realize that I have grieved the Holy Spirit, how long does it take until I put it right? I love R.T. Kendall's definition of spirituality. It is the time gap between sin and repentance. How long does it take you to realize and admit that you have sinned and you have grieved the Holy Spirit? It's a critical thing. We need to know about the one who lives in us. Who lives in us. And so I invite you tonight, just as we close, to use the quietness of the final parts of these moments, the quietness of the prayer room next door if necessary. A room that has been set aside where you can just go in there in the quietness and just pray before you head off. Watch the second half where you can go in there with somebody and pray, where you can go in there and be prayed for if you'd love someone to pray with you. But if you feel sense, recognize, you know, I have, I've grieved the Holy Spirit of God who lives within me. This Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth who teaches me all things, who is fully God, who is a person who's a distinct person. I've grieved him then take time to restore the relationship. So there's eight things so far. At least 12 more to go. The Holy Spirit's a person, distinct person, God, involved in creation, active and present in people's lives in the Old Testament. He's the Spirit of truth. He's our teacher and he can be grieved. We're gonna close with a song that says, there must be more than this. And I do love this. This, this, is, a, this is a song that kind of takes us back to the A.W. Tozer quote. There must be more than this. O breath of God, O spirit of God, come breathe within. And then consuming fire, fan into flame a passion for your name. So you know, at times I do think, God, there's gotta be more to the Christian life than I'm living There's got to be more to kind of Christian worship and the experience of church than what we're experiencing. So God, there is, there's got to be more than this. So let's pray for more, as we were thinking this morning, to be more influenced by the Spirit of God in our lives and in our church. Let's stand together.